We're already up to lesson number 40 in our study in Matthew. You've been going at it almost a year here. I think I wrote down, I think I put a date on the first page. October 8th would be when we started with the first lesson on Matthew. So we're up to lesson number 40, and here it is, just the 20, what is it, the 23rd day. <laughs> I got second here, I knew that was wrong. 23rd day of September. So we're clicking right along, and today, uh, I, could, I guess I could begin by saying uh, we're, we're up to a, a lesson. I can't say it's near and dear to my heart, but I can say it's one that I've had to contend with, obviously, in my line of work from that perspective, a very practical perspective, but that's certainly not the intent of Scripture, because as Christ begins talking about these six things that... Uh, He's, he's pulled out to make specific examples about how our thinking is supposed to change. Um, he picks from the first here, the first of these six things is murder. Murder. And we're faced with a point of confusion for many right off the bat because if you go out here and stop somebody on the road and start talking about this particular topic, well, they're going to be more familiar with killing, right? They're going to tell you, and it's because of certain translations of Scripture that it talks about killing. Thou shalt not kill. And from that, and from the misunderstanding of what the Word actually says there, they get into all kinds of varying doctrines about what's right and what's wrong regarding killing in general. We'll, we'll touch on some of those. But of course, we know that it's talking about murder, uh, very, very serious. Uh, I dare say that in, um, in my capacity as a police officer over the past many years, and even not having worked uh, in like the homicide unit in particular, and some of you may not know and realize, but Andy over here is retired from Cobb County Police and worked, worked in homicide for many years. How many years, Andy? Six, Six years. And uh, the things you see, but even the things you see aren't exposed to as a, just as a police officer, somebody who's answering calls, oftentimes the first one who gets there before Andy and his, his crew would get there as follow-up investigators. Um, you, you come away from these situations, you kind of feel like, Man, I, need to go, I need to go sit down, I need to go in a room somewhere. Or I often say sit on a rock and just kind of contemplate what went down here and pull things together. One thing that you always come away with is just the futility of, I guess you would say, the result of people's anger, what it can actually lead to. The most horrific things that are literally, from a human standpoint, from a, from a uh, foundation of, of, where there's a foundation of love and concern, you don't, you don't see how such an act could emerge from a human being, and you go back and you look at all the things that led up to this act, whether it was just somebody out of their mind, totally irresponsible because of the choices that they had made, whether or not it deals with any kind of substance abuse or whatever. Uh, that's not always the case. It could be cases where literally just the relationships and so forth got so far out of whack and people were so selfish in what they were doing that they made this horrible, horrible, irresponsible decision take somebody's life. But murder has remained to be a part of our human society. Of course, we go back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. 
And we know what happened there. As Cain, it says, rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And uh, without getting into political commentary, uh, I'll just add that there was uh, no waiting period on rocks back then or anything along that line, okay? There was no waiting period. Uh, didn't have anything to do with the fact that oh, nobody came out and said, we got to get rid of all these rocks laying around here. Look, look what happened, okay? Uh, no, and that's a good point. <laughs> it's a good point because that in itself tells us it starts somewhere else. And this is the very essence of what Jesus is going to point out. This is the overall thing that He wants to make crystal clear. Crystal clear. That it begins in the heart. These attitudes that lead to these, these horrible actions. Even with Cain, from Genesis 4 here, uh, the Lord warned him, did He not? He said that if you do well, sin is crouching if you do not do well, rather, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Its desire is for you. And the emphasis there is that it wants to overtake you. It wants to dominate you. And we're just talking about literally feelings here, attitudes, things that we've allowed to get so deep within us that they move us to certain actions. This is dangerous. This is dangerous, obviously. And he's saying you must master it. Oh, there's hope then, right? There's hope. How would he master that? How would he respond to that? How should he have responded, right? He should have said in his heart, well, what is the Lord's Word on this? Why was my sacrifice not acceptable? And even furthermore, why am I so put out about it? Why does it bother me so much that my brother's sacrifice was acceptable and mine wasn't? Now you're getting down to the real meat of the problem, which is... Say it. Well, in the heart, but this particular problem there, it was just his own self-righteousness, his own pride, okay? Being stacked up against somebody else and not, you know, making the cut, not surviving the test. Totally self-centered. So it is a very serious, serious act. We online there, Charlie? We're good. Thank you, man. Nothing has changed. The human heart has not changed. It's still the same. So even before that, in verse 5 of chapter 4, it reads, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain, Cain became, here it is, very angry. He became very angry and his countenance fell. That is, he became angry to a point where you could see this thing dominating him. It was, even, it was visual. You could tell that there was something going on within him that had taken him over. And the heart, and what's going on in the heart is reflective of this. This has not changed. This whole... This whole dynamic here, all the way back to Genesis 4, it has not changed. This is totally reflective of the heart of man and how we get out of balance to this, this horrible level, this horrible degree. We know it. We see it manifested sometimes, not in actual murder or 
a, a physical act of murder, but how do we see this manifested in other ways? The tongue. The tongue. Fighting. Was that what you said, brother? Yeah. So we know that it's going to come out in some fashion. And what we'll learn from Jesus' teaching here, this does not let us off the hook regarding this particular accusation of murder. That's still there. It's still there. You follow what I'm saying? We still have to deal with that because of what's happening within our hearts. Murder in the U.S., I pulled a few statistics. I won't belabor these, but give me like one minute here. 2015, uh, the data that I pulled said there were 15,696 murders and that firearms were used in 71.5% of those murders. Again, 2015. Now, these are FBI statistics, which I have access to. Uh, 2016, there was an 8.6% increase, according to the FBI, up to 17,250. Then I pulled some data from the World Health Organization that said that a, a person is murdered somewhere in the world every 60 seconds. Every 60 seconds. One person dies in an armed conflict every 100 seconds worldwide. If you wonder which city in the United States you're most likely to be murdered, what would you think? Well, I would have thought Chicago too, but that's a recent anomaly. What? Uh, Detroit. Detroit, Michigan. But then again, my next note here is that by October of 2016, Chicago had over 600 murders in that city. And of course, that made news and national news and so forth. Now, along with that, because what you'll see when you're looking at FBI statistics and all these other kind of things come into play. Okay, they all, all of them come into play to affect numbers. But when uh, MacArthur Commentary was written, Matthew, that was back in 1985, he reported that there were at least 25,000 known murders committed in the United States every year using a different look, a different approach. When we see the murder rate go down, you have to consider a lot of factors. For one, particularly in our times, you have to consider the highly effective level now of an emergency response and what we can do from a medical perspective in getting people on the scene very, very quickly. And then, of course, the medications and techniques that are available to keep someone who maybe just months ago or a year ago would have died in that situation as a result of that murderous act. Now they survive, so they don't go down in the statistics. So really, if you want to get a picture, you might want to look at aggravated assaults. Okay, situations where someone could have died. And that would be accurate because... That's a reflection of the heart, right? Regardless of what comes out of this. So our numbers increase greatly. They increase greatly. The point of fact is, we know and understand to some degree the heart of man. We know what's in there, regardless of what the numbers say. And we know what the potential is. Jesus chooses this sin of murder to begin this, uh, this list of six illustrations or antitheses, as they're often referred to as you study these scriptures. Now, he's not saying that what he's teaching is going to be antithetical to the law. He's not teaching that. Remember, he's come to fulfill. He's come to provide clarification. And that's exactly what he's going to do here. Also recall as we move forward with all six of these that we'll look at, he's doing this in response to that statement out of verse 20 
in chapter 5 that their righteousness must exceed, if you want to go to heaven, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. So this is what he's talking about. It's not just the words on the page. It's not just the fact that I've never physically, practically killed anyone. He's going to move far beyond that. And then in talking about that, he's going to show them that no, what I'm talking about starts from within a person. And if that's a reality in your heart, and it, it pains me to say this because as I do this, I need some fingers coming back at me <laughs> to include me. You're guilty. You're guilty. And that's where he wants us to see clearly as we examine our own heart regarding even murder. Murder. So what is it? We'll look at it specifically in just a moment. I did pick up on one phrase that I like that I know MacArthur continues to use. I had not seen it anywhere else in the material I studied, but he refers to a heart righteousness. The point is specifically to that which has occurred in the heart. The heart has been changed. A heart righteousness, which governs the way that we think, right? Uh, I'll go further. It governs the way that we feel because when those feelings, those unctions, if you will, pop up within us, those desires, whatever you want to call them, they must be weighed against the Word of God. They must be weighed against the power of God's Spirit within us. Do you follow what I'm saying? Because they're misleading. They are misleading. And we can't go by what we feel, by what we desire in every sense. We must rely upon the Word of God, the Spirit of God, to change us. To make us see more clearly. This is what the Word of God and the presence of Christ within us does. This is how the church as a whole, the true church, manifests itself. Because when you stack up the church against the world, you see this difference. You see it. We are not to act as as the, the family of God. We are not to act and respond as the world would. And yet we still have to deal with the flesh like everyone else. That's what we do. So in chapter 5, verse 21, it reads, You have heard, We talked about this phrase last week as we prepared to get into these verses where Jesus says, you have heard, and He's talking about those teachers from old, from the Jews. You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Well again, these ancients, Christ is referring to the Jewish rabbis from long ago and the rhetoric that they put forth. That continued to be taught in the synagogues. Jesus' teaching here is clearly challenging the command as was present in those early ancient writings from the Jews. They actually said that it was okay to hate your enemy. It was alright to hate your enemy. It was a godly thing to hate those which if they were against you and you were standing for God, then you hated them. And this, of course, was out of balance and did not reflect what Christ is trying to show here. It was just simply a product of that rabbinic interpretation. But it was very prevalent. But when you've got a system that actually teaches hate on any level, any level whatsoever, 
then that's a springboard for anyone who wants to justify the way that they feel and the vengeance that they might be after within their own heart. So he wanted to shed some light on that. You shall not commit murder. Not killing, but murder. You'll find a number of definitions. Consider this one for murder. The intentional killing of another human being for purely personal reasons. Whatever those reasons might be. It's built upon selfishness. It's built upon one's own personal desires. Now, if you go to a training class in the law enforcement world dealing with homicides or on serial killers or any of this, this kind of thing that obviously we get to do from time to time, certainly at some point in our career, you'll, you'll be taught and that all murder is motivated by one of three things. What would you think? If you had to pick three things that most often, or in, well, they'll say in every case, is apt to end in murder, what would those three things be? A desire for money, that's, that's one of them. Greed, as they say. Well, revenge is a big one. So we got money and revenge. And the other one's a little more, a little deeper. Requires some people with PhDs to help you wrap your head around it. But it's sex. People kill for greed. They kill for revenge, and they kill for sex. And I don't have a problem taking this. Now, when I say sex, I'm talking about warped kind of things, okay? A sexual gratification within a person which goes deep, and you get in all this serial killer stuff and all that. It's, it's a deep, dark place to go. We ain't going there this morning. Just know that's, that's what we're talking about. It's not hard for me to take those three things, though, and see how anger, which is what we're about to get into, anger is behind all of that. It's easier to see perhaps maybe with, with sex and money, people might be angry at some level because they don't have something. They can't have what they want. So it could be truly anger that pushes them toward that. Now anger is not as hard to hook up when you consider the third one there, revenge. We can see that a little more clearly. But the Bible teaches us that anger, anger is where it starts. And we're going to look at that. But first, note, you know, the commandment in Exodus chapter 20:13 is uh, not against all killing, as some have interpreted. I mentioned that up front. It doesn't refer to the killing of animals. And I mentioned these next few things because they're all mentioned at some level in the Bible. The killing of animals, capital punishment, accidental homicide, uh, killing that results from a person defending themselves, rightly defending themselves, or even killing in what's referred to as a just war. Scripture is going to talk about those things. So we can't look at it as killing in general. It's, it's specifically murder is the prohibition here. And Paul includes murder in his list of those things which characterize the depraved mind, you know, from, from Romans chapter 1. You'll see murder listed in that list. Solomon includes murder in his list of those things which God hates. You know, from Proverbs chapter 6, he mentions hands that shed innocent blood. That's what he's talking about there. John, even in the Revelation, writes, he mentions murderers in his description of those who are outside the camp, who are outside of heaven. He says they're out there with dogs and sorcerers 
and immoral persons and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. He's got murderers in that list there from Revelation 22.15. Jesus will tell us in Matthew later, and I've got chapter 115, verse 19, so I don't, I'm sorry, it's probably 15.19. <laughs> I've just got an extra one in there. Um, but He says that it's out of the heart. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanderers. What a list. And then lastly, we know that the original murderer was who? Who's the original murderer? Not Kate, Satan, yes. Because he says, John, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So he's the father of lies and he is the original murderer. And I end with that verse just so that we can kind of let that, let that reality of Scripture take us home just a moment to realize that when we're operating in that vein, when we're thinking in that fashion, when we're entertaining thoughts, desires that push us toward some horrible, horrible thought or action. And in almost every case, it seems like it's like, you know, well, I would never do that. But I'm entertaining this right now. I'm getting some satisfaction. Okay, I'm getting my pound of flesh just from imagining what could happen if I could get my hands around this person's throat or whatever. Or often, if I could just sit back and watch their life fall apart because of what they said or did to me. How far away from the grace of God is that? It's what Jesus wants us to look at. And where, where must we be elevating ourselves in order to be able to entertain such thoughts towards someone else? That's what He wants us to contend with. Because that's where the work has to be done. Christ's teaching on murder has an impact specifically on how we see ourselves. That's the purpose of this whole thing. And Christ in His teaching wants His hearers and He wants us today to take this truth and to examine it and to understand its impact upon our own heart. There's no... There's no allowance for any kind of self-righteousness as we look at Christ's teaching here. All self-righteousness is exposed and it's absolutely shattered when we look at what He has to say here. <coughs> it caused me to look back on a couple of things that I experienced even as a young patrol officer because I can remember being thrust into situations or something happening to me that really did require me, you know, I, my, I would say to myself, you, know, you need to go think about this because you've you got to make sure that you react rightly. Because this is what you might be dealing with. You might get three of these a week. You might not have one for three years. But you might be thrown into a situation where you have to deal with realities. 
And you're there to restore peace and to keep order and to do a job. And it's always reflective. It's always eye-opening when you go deep and you just look at why you do what you do, why you feel like you feel. If I've shared this with you before, I apologize. Uh, raise your hand and say stop if I have. But I was working a wrestling match at the Civic Center in Cobb County one time. I was a park ranger then. I was very new in law enforcement, waiting to get transferred over to the police department. I'm standing there after this match. I'm standing down there. Y'all been in the Cobb Civic Center? I'm standing back there at the back, the, the, the back side that goes kind of toward, if you go out the back building, you'd go over to the Aquatic Center that way. And they were building the Aquatic Center at that time. I'm old. And um, I'm standing there, and if you know the area, there's a balcony over the top. So I'm standing there like this, and all of a sudden I feel this just dripped down on my face and I thought air conditioner was leaking or something and when I looked up I saw a young boy he had spit on me okay and it was all over my it went down the side of my face and was down literally across my badge okay and almost right when I looked up he dashed and he had to go down those stairs and out the back and he went out the back and by the time I realized what was going on the anger began to build so I run out the back door He's coming out. He's taking off. He's a kid. I can tell. He's a kid. And I'm chasing this guy across the back, running toward what's now the aquatic center. They were building that area. It was, uh, had been raining, and there was about that much water standing. And I remember slish, slish, splash, splash, running. My pistol fell out of my holster. I didn't even know it. It was under about that much water. And I came about that close to getting my hands on this guy before he put it in Second gear, I'm sure he's on scholarship somewhere running a football. <laughs> but, but when I look back on that, I remember how totally out of control I was. And I thank God today that I did not catch that kid. It would have cost me my career. All right? And I remember just shaking, just shaking. And I went back and somehow found my cheap pistol laying there in the mud and I got it and went back and when I walked up my sergeant they didn't know what was going on. he said what is wrong with you I said you know I told him what happened he just saw me running he didn't see anything else but I thought about that later on and I'm so glad when I look back that that happened because that was the Lord I'm confident today giving me a near miss experience to force me to deal with this issue about controlling my own emotions, because there would be more times like that. I mean, I was a park ranger. I mean, there would be more times like that. I can't count them all, and I wouldn't bore you or in any, in any way try to entertain you with all this. And I hope it's helpful, because I know everyone has been in a similar situation. A similar situation. I thought of the times I went out on a call one night in West Cobb, uh, a family that <clears throat> just had all kinds of problems, but most of their problems were their own doing, were their own choices. And I remember finding a, uh, a toddler there and a kid who was two or three years old and then a young girl who was 11 or 12. She was there taking care of everyone. There was no electricity in the house. The plumbing didn't work. They had uh, some five-gallon buckets of what you get sheetrock mud in in a particular room that's where they went to the bathroom there was nasty food and everything everywhere we got a child the crimes against children in came out there uh, 
but you know, you, you, when you have to take a toddler to Kennestone Hospital and let them soak in a bucket of hot water just to get their diaper off of them, it causes something to ri rise up within you. And so here I am, now I am a police officer, I'm dealing with these things, and I don't, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to deal with this person. I don't want to know who, who's responsible for this. I don't want to get my hands on them. You know, you have those kinds of experiences. And you look back on people who've worked cases and where they've killed, people have been killed and horribly, and then when the person is caught, when they're finally caught, and they have this smug or, you know, this horrible attitude about what they've done. They're totally without remorse. Uh, it's not uncommon to have to restrain officers sometimes. It's not uncommon. So these are things that you're forced to deal with. My message to you this morning is that if you've had similar things in your life, consider it a blessing. And by that I mean incidents that have required you or giving you an opportunity to think. Most of the time, it's not about our actions. It's about the words that are going to follow, right? Because of the depth of the hurt within us. Christ says, you need to look at that. Because if you let it go too far, just as He told Cain, it will master you. It will dominate you. And we don't, we don't want that to happen. Murder is not merely limited, as we can see, to the physical act. It occurs within the heart of a person. In Jesus' day, the traditional penalty for murder amongst the Jews was, as he says, to be liable to the court here. And he's talking about the civil court. But if you go back from a historical perspective and look at what was going on then, the, the Jews knew what the law was, what it said, but they had taken control of that process as well. It didn't necessarily mean that when a person was literally found guilty that they were going to suffer, that there was going to be a capital verdict involved because they had plugged in their own method, if you will, of analyzing a situation. And even though there was a murder, the person might not fall under the penalty which Scripture required there. It's just another example of where man's got his two cents worth in it and has deviated from the command of God. That was, that was the reality in Jesus' day as well. They didn't consider, if you will, the character of God, I mean, from a religious perspective. By that I mean the character of God having been violated because of the act. That wasn't on their list of things. Or desecrating the law itself. Or even His image, as you know, people are created in His image. This, this wasn't at stake. It was a little more political than that. So Jesus understood that. It wasn't about dishonoring the Lord. But it's the heart of man. This issue of heart righteousness that's key. And it wasn't even an issue at that day and time when Jesus was, doing, was literally teaching this. Christ's teaching on this subject exposes any self-righteousness. And what it does, it leads us, the hearers, to consider our own guilt. Are we in any way guilty? Because as we know, and as the point is clearly made, it originates in the heart, not in the hands. The hands are simply a manifestation. Or the words. The words. Murder starts with evil thoughts. It may or may not end in physical actions. 
This issues of anger, hating, cursing, maligning. These are the seeds of murder that occurs within the heart of a person. And the fact that there's fear on the part of the, the person who's experiencing this, or maybe they're just, just a coward. They're not, going to, they're not going to fulfill what their heart is telling them to do. Or maybe it's just lack of opportunity. This doesn't get them off the hook. Now they're still guilty of murder. You follow what I'm saying? They're still guilty of murder within the heart. And Christ calls it what it is. I mean, He doesn't say, well, this is in the heart, so this is going to be different. The penalty would be different. No, He says you, you're guilty and you deserve condemnation over this. You deserve it. And He's going to tell us about it. He's going to tell us about it on three different levels here in just a moment. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now this is from 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. And interestingly enough, now here in, in the context, John is talking about a brother in Christ. That is the specific reference. Now in the Scriptures here, we'll see it when, he's, when Christ is talking about brother. It's not even that word. He's talking about a much broader. He's talking about just a human brother. Okay? Sociologists and psychologists report that hatred begins or it brings a person closer to murder than does any other emotion. Hatred, obviously, it comes and is stimulated from an excessive anger within a person. Verse 22 of chapter 5. Jesus has told us about what the ancients have said. And then He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You are good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. That's what He told them. So you see these... Three definitions here, these, these three examples, if you will. There is a progression to them, but they're all very, very serious. They all have their penalty. And he starts with anger. And it is evil. And it is dangerous. Now this is not righteous anger. Okay, or what we've come to know is righteous indignation. He's not talking about. He's not talking about Jesus clearing the temple and all that on a couple of cases. He's not talking about that. Nor is He talking about what Paul uh, tells us in Ephesians chapter 4. Be angry and sin not. There is a type, if you will, of emotional response that builds up within us, that moves us to action, but it's not evil. It has to do with the glory of God. It has to do with protecting the the veracity, if you will, of His Word, acting on His behalf, calling sin what it is, exposing sin, that's good. Psalm 7.11 says that God is angry with the wicked every day. Every single day. But here, angry is the Greek word, I think it's orgizo, or orgizo. And it literally means to be angry. It denotes some type of brooding though. It's a, it's a simmering anger. It's something inside that's being nurtured and it's, it's something that's being kept alive. It can be killed and put down, but it's being nurtured. It's being fed. It's being kept alive within a person. 
Of course, that results in us holding a grudge against someone. We actually begin to cherish the resentment. There's no desire for reconciliation. It's just this, this smoldering bitterness as it's described. A refusal to forgive. Anybody guilty? Anybody? Now, this is exactly what Christ is pointing to. This is what He says brings condemnation on a person. Experiencing this, harboring this, not repenting of this, allowing this desire, this attitude to dominate us. He says, in the heart of man, and more specifically, written in heaven on mine and your behalf, is the crime of murder. That's pretty heavy. And yet that's what he says. He says, this anger is a form of murder that lands a person before the court. He's talking about a civil court. He's talking about a bona fide situation where the charge is legitimate. They are guilty and there is a prescribed penalty waiting for that person. That's what's understood here. But then he talks about slander as well, more specifically. Because he also says, and secondly, after murder, he says, you say to a person that you're good for nothing. This is your attitude toward this person. That they are good for nothing. And you'll see it rendered a lot of times. It's that word raka. You've heard it. He who says to his brother in one translation, raka, or your R-A-C-A, or sometimes it has an H in front of it, which really is <clears throat> more appropriate, I think, is raka, because it's a word that's supposed to, when you say it, it indicates some sort of aggravation. Is that onomatopoeic? Is that what that is? But it's uh, that kind of word. A term of malicious abuse. Some sort of derision toward that person. Definitely a slander. Often it's associated with the phrase brainless idiot. Worthless, silly, empty-headed. And one commentator I was looking at said this was the exact same type of word usage that was present amongst the soldiers as they mocked and tortured Jesus Christ. Words are related. Scripture says, Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who devise evil things in their hearts. They continually stir up wars. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. The damage that we do with words. And Christ says when it comes from the heart, you got a lot to account for. We can be reckless in what we think, do, and say, particularly in what we think. And that's the emphasis here. Bringing, if you will, every thought captive. That's a large bill to fill, is it not? But that has to be our desire. To bring ourselves before the Lord in such a state. Lord, examine every thought, every motivation, every attitude. Because we know that evil results from the seeds of these things when they're incorrect. When they're allowed to take root. And they grow and they push out, Lord, what You've put in there. That the light and dark thing is still going on with inside me. And it's only by Your mercy and grace that I have any victory over this. Be encouraged. We can improve. (laughs) We can. We can experience the Lord's victory here. But only as we yield to His Word. We acknowledge that this is a reality in our heart and life. 
a reality. He says, if you do this, you call him a good-for-nothing, that you're liable to the Supreme Court. Now, in his day, he would have been talking about the Sanhedrin or the Council of the Seventy. Now, these were the people who could pronounce death by stoning if they had to. He's trying to create a picture here that there is accountability. And it's, a, it's, it's an actual, it's a bona fide accountability because you're guilty, is what he's saying. And then lastly, this last one, when you call somebody a fool from the heart, condemning that person's character, as he says, this is a very, this is the most serious. This is from the Greek word moros. Moros, it simply means stupid or just being dull. You know, it's, it's where obviously you can see the relationship with the words. It's where we get the word moron. Moron. And that word is closely related to a, a, a parallel Hebrew word, uh, where am I, which is ceremony, and it's the word mara, or mara, M-A-R-A. And that word was associated most often with being godless. So, in their day, it was like telling someone, you're worth nothing, you're an idiot, and there's no hope for you. God won't even deal with you. And we see this in the attitude of the Pharisees, particularly you see it. I go, I go back to Luke uh, 16, or 15, where he's, you know, the, the, the boy who ran away. Uh, the prodigal son, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I've only taught that eight times. Uh, the prodigal son. And you see the attitude of the Jews there in that boy that he deserved nothing nothing because of what he had done. He was written off. He was in their minds dead as we know because what did they do back then? They had a funeral for a kid who turned his back on Israel, who turned his back on his family, who went off to some foreign, to some foreign land to sow his wild oats. Consider him dead. Let's have a funeral for him. Have a funeral for him. I actually ran into a guy. I know I've shared this. Fayez Zaknini from our former church that we used to attend. He was from Nazareth, born in Nazareth. Great preacher, good evangelist. But when he and his brother came to Christ and they're teenagers, they, they lived in Nazareth. They're Arabians. They had a funeral for him. And he said he hadn't seen his mom and dad. Now, at that time, it was like 30-something years. 30-something years. They were written off. When you say somebody, you're just an idiot. You're a fool. And you know, I hear this kind of language all the time. And even in studying this, this has really uh, gotten into my heart in a deeper way because I'm sad to say that uh, some of the folks that I deal with on a daily basis, they think like this. They, they verbalize this and they don't realize what they're saying. When something goes wrong or something goes amiss, their first thing is to find out who can I blame. And when they find out who they can, who they can blame, they take this person down... <laughs> just to the lowest level with verbal abuse, all kinds of, you know, are you exposed to that like I am? And it really upset me because it's so reflective of the heart, what's going on in a person's heart. He says, you do this, you're guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And when Jesus is talking about hell, He means hell. He uses this phrase 11 times. There's no doubt about what he's talking about. It's that Greek word Gehenna, or as you see it, Gehenna, referring to the Valley of Hinnom, which has a long, long history, a uh, horrible history of human sacrifice, a place of human carnage. It was just southwest of Jerusalem. Uh, practically, it was a perpetual hump or dump, 
it, it, it was fire. It was always burning. They talk about a perpetual fire all the time there. It's where the bodies of the condemned were often taken and thrown out. But it's history in the past, and you can read about it in the Bible, it's of, of human sacrifice and so on and so forth. A horrible place. And it soon became what we would call a metonym for hell. This Gehenna, as they would call it. And people knew exactly what Christ was talking about. And he says, if therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar. Now this is how serious this is. And I'm going to finish up. You're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother, and this is brother in the broad term, this is not Christian brother, has something against you. Here's Christ's command. Leave your offering there before the altar. Okay? And go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. It was a very serious thing in that day to interrupt worship. And you've got to understand that the, the most practical context here for this is that someone is calling, they're, they're there with the sin offering presenting the, the uh, sacrifice for their sin, you know, in the temple, so on and so forth. These people have come from miles and miles and miles. Up to 80 miles. And, and he's saying, okay, you've made all these arrangements, you've made all these preparations, but you can't worship. In fact, leave your gift and go back to wherever you came from and make it right with your brother. Aren't you thankful for cell phones nowadays? Aren't you? Make it right with your brother or your sister first and then come back because it is highly hypocritical to think you can come before God, listen, even this morning and worship Him knowing that there's something between you and someone that that you can do something about. And you've made no effort to do that or you've made the wrong kind of effort. Your heart hasn't changed to the point where you've put them first. Only Christians can do that. Truly. Only Christians can do that. Somebody said we're never more like Christ than when we're giving. I think there was a move afoot to raise money. You're never more like Christ when you are forgiving. Or if you're giving forgiveness. That's what He does. Well, He tells us to remember. Remember. This is a sin that can't be seen. I think that's probably why we don't deal with it as much. It's something between our ears, down in our heart. Who's going to know? You know, I'm justified anyway. You know, in the way I feel, I'll be slow in dealing with this. I'll just kind of let it simmer and burn off, and I can think about it more clearly. I would put a caution there. I would say get on top of it and deal with it. Uh, under the sound of God's word and the influence of His word, call it what it is. And if you've got a close, close friend that you can share that dilemma with, you let them speak some truth into your life over a matter such as this. We are to go. We may not be the one offending. It's clear. We just may be aware that he's or she's got something against us. And also understand, look, in context, you know, where he says something against you, this is not referring to some unreasonable grudge that somebody has. This is a legitimate grievance. Okay? This is not necessarily a situation where they believe this and you believe this and you, you know, you, you've gone to the Word, you, you've, you've got it clear in your head, but they're still out of whack. You, you can't do something about everything, right? But you have to do all that you can do until the Lord 
says there's, there's nothing else. You've given the word. You're not part of the problem. You've apologized. You've done this. You've done that. They're still angry. You know, it's just like the church as a whole can't do anything with that at some point because in Matthew 18 it says, hey, if they don't respond. Treat them like they're acting. Treat them like an unbeliever. It's that same thing. We can only go so far. But we will give an account on how far we have gone. You follow that? We are responsible. We are responsible. I'm going to stop. I didn't quite get through. I am on the last page. We'll finish up with that just a little bit next week. But there's a lot here. This is about murder, but it's more specifically about dealing with the heart. Lord, change my heart. Lord.